You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. Sixteen lectures. This is Lecture 3, entitled The Inwardness of the Human Soul and Its Relationship to the World, given in Frankfurt on the 8th of January, 1911. Today and tomorrow evening, drawing on Goethe, we will discuss various matters of interest to the pupil of spiritual science concerning inner aspects of the human soul, its evolution, and its relationship to the world. Since questions considered in both lectures will be centered on Goethe, it seems sensible, firstly, to ensure that you possess a certain acquaintance with the basic elements of human soul life by speaking separately from Goethe of the inner nature of the human soul, drawing instead on spiritual scientific sources, as we usually do. If we consider the evolution of the human soul, we must clearly distinguish between the sentient soul, the mind soul, and the consciousness soul. In speaking firstly of the sentient soul, we are not referring only to that aspect of soul capable of connecting to the outer world through perception and sense impressions, but also to the center within us of what we can call drives, desires and passions and also all impulses of will. Actually, consideration of everything of the nature of will, everything that arises as an inner impetus in our quest for a relationship with the outer world is most useful when it comes to forming an idea of the nature of the sentient soul within us. This is the very essence of the sentient soul. And at the same time it is the most important mediator too in our reception of outer impressions facilitated by processes of perception. For this reason it is called the sentient soul. The sentient soul holds sway Whenever we receive an impression of color or tone, it holds sway largely too when passions arise in us, such as anger or strong feelings, such as fear. What we call the mind or rational soul only slowly emerges from the sentient soul and in certain respects is already more lucid than the sentient soul. In the mind soul we find capacities to clothe in thoughts what has been felt in the sentient soul, the instincts and emotions we experience, and to elucidate them into a more human form of soul life. If, for instance, affects that are otherwise only focused on self-preservation clarify into benevolence and even into loving conduct toward one's surroundings, then the mind-soul is already at work. In the mind-soul dawns the I, capital, the true center of our soul life. 
in the further evolution of the I, during which we come to feel our interiority and our capacity to work and act out of our center, we can form our thoughts and mental pictures into great ideas with which to encompass nature or into moral thoughts or ideas of duty. In all that we relate to in this way, we speak of the consciousness soul. There are no hard and fast divisions between these different aspects of the soul, but it is necessary to distinguish between them since each relates to the outer world in a different way. If we first consider the consciousness soul, we find it initially to be our highest aspect of soul, but at the same time, the part which has most clearly separated itself, in a sense, from the rest of the world. It is the most autonomous aspect of the soul. When we steep ourselves in the consciousness soul, we can be most alone in our soul life, most isolated from the outer world. This is part of the soul which by its very nature erects the most barriers and boundaries against the surrounding world. In consequence, it is more predisposed to succumb to mistakes and errors. It is the aspect of soul most detached from the universe. And yet the errors it succumbs to are limited in scope. This is the most important aspect of what we call the consciousness soul. Above all, it expresses itself as logical thinking, as conceptual analysis, also as calculation and mathematical thinking, as all activity intrinsic in certain respects to human beings alone and not found in animals. The powers of the sentient and mind soul rise up into the consciousness soul. The drives, passions and desires, the will impulses of the sentient soul and the feelings and intellectual judgments of the mind soul penetrate it. Yet in the consciousness soul all this is processed by logical thinking and therefore our opinions are formed primarily within the latter. And since the consciousness soul is the most isolated part of the soul, people's opinions are all very divergent. If we think of things we hold in common, which have developed within our nation, our family circle, because they are customary in our surroundings, these are elements that reside in the rational or mind-soul. Yet things that first have their seat in the consciousness soul can migrate into the mind-soul. For example, an opinion we once formed can become habitual, or a capacity we develop can transform into an habitual skill and has then descended into the mind-soul. The consciousness soul is also the most isolated aspect of the soul, because it is from there that we directly extend our feelers into the world around us. When we consider what we wish to do, we are living in the mind-soul. When we observe what is around us, we extend through our senses our feelers, directly out of the consciousness soul and return again to what makes us the most isolated of beings. You see, what our senses offer us makes us into isolated beings. We isolate ourselves precisely because we must establish a relationship with the outer world in an entirely local and temporary way through the consciousness soul. 
But opinions reside most strongly in the consciousness soul. First, an opinion asserts itself and takes root in the consciousness soul. This is why we are isolated beings in respect of our opinions. In respect of habits, people understand each other better already. We are most independent but also most isolated within the consciousness soul. And thus it is difficult for us to gain access to the content of the consciousness soul of another person. We do not even know whether the other sees the colors red and blue in the same way that we do. But apart from this, let us now consider the content of the consciousness soul that consists of views and opinions. Let us consider something that may appear extremely logical, opinions which we may imagine to have the soundest possible logical basis. Nevertheless, we cannot get very far with our fellow human beings with these logical reasonings. Logical reasons do not initially have any traction in outer life, and this is actually the normal state of affairs. It is therefore easy to win young people, children, round to our view of things. Later it will be increasingly difficult. Children meet us not only with their consciousness soul, but with their mind and sentient soul too. They meet us with their whole personality, and our powers to persuade and convince are dependent on far more than the consciousness soul. The will, the feeling is predominant. The most logical justification can be found for the most varied points of view, depending on differences of will and feeling. Yet in the present cycle of humanity, people are properly independent only as far as the consciousness soul is concerned, and less so in respect of the other aspects of the soul. Try to sense how opinions form. A person is entirely free to form an opinion, a context of concepts and ideas. They are less free in respect of the content of the mind-soul. Here a person does not feel free at all, for otherwise their feelings could not play such havoc with them as they often do. In our views and opinions we can be fully convinced, in ourselves, that something or other must displease us. But our feelings speak differently and allow us to find a pleasure at odds with our opinion. The fact that our feeling sensibility can contradict our opinions can show us that we are not as free in regard to feeling as to opinions. We feel ourselves least free of all in everything that concerns the will, in the whole nature of the sentient soul. The discrepancy can sometimes be very great indeed between the finest principles, between the view that something or other is not good and the drive, the emotional urge. Here's a drastic example. The mind-soul of a teacher, in charge of an angry child, recognizes that this anger must be expunged. But since he does not succeed in achieving this by beneficial means, he throws an ink pot at his head. Here we see the greatest discrepancy. What is going on in the soul to give rise to this discrepancy? It is because at our current stage of evolution we are isolated in the consciousness soul, but that nevertheless at the boundary between this and the mind or feeling soul, an influence upon the soul is at work 
from beings higher than the human level. And again at the boundary between the mind-soul and the sentient-soul, a similar influence exists from powers outside and above the human being. The same is true at the boundary between the sentient soul and the sentient body. I am describing the situation in our present era, in our century. Circumstances are different in other eras. We can easily discover how other powers are at work upon us when we consider the will, when we think we reside with ourselves. We can sit down in a corner and dwell in our thoughts. But to carry out a will impulse, we must move hands and feet, we must initiate a physical action. In passing from one thought to another, our consciousness remains present. But initially, we have no idea what happens at the transition between the thought, quote, I will pick up the clock, close quote, and then actually performing this action. This is quite different from passing from one thought to another, during which we can observe the whole sequence consciously. And this is an instance of other powers intervening to aid us. At the boundary between the mind-soul and the consciousness-soul, beings intervene, whom we can call angels or angeloi. They are beings who condense what otherwise occurs consciously in opinions, condense these into what we can call feelings. The expression feeling is a little vague, What we inwardly feel is already a condensing of thought, and underlying this are powers that aid us. Let us now look at the boundary between the mind-soul and the sentient-soul. Here, there are still higher beings that intervene. They stir the will in us, empower thought to become will. These are the archangels, or archangeloi. But when we enter into relationship with the surrounding world, the spirits of personality are at work. Here we already feel the world's opposition or resistance when we engage and intervene in its fabric. Thus in the intermediate realms between different soul forces dwell spirit beings that lead us and strengthen us and have the mission of transforming into deeds, into powers, what we can only otherwise experience as thought, if left to ourselves. Now when we descend into the subconscious regions of soul life, immediately it is possible that the battles that occur and must occur within the world of spirit intrude also into the arena of our consciousness. Where angelic beings intervene, luciferic beings, adversaries of the angels, are also immediately present. If only the angels intervened, our feeling sensibility, our mind would reach out only to what is beautiful, to what corresponds to our human dignity. The luciferic beings lead us toward things we would not be in agreement with if we reflected calmly, but which we are drawn to nevertheless. Where the archangels intervene, our amonic beings can do so likewise and can succeed in turning our judgment into misjudgment, our search for truth into lies. Logical opinion is freely given us human beings. But the moment we arrive at feelings, at impulses of will, other beings play in, including ones who oppose the benevolent beings. 
Anyone who acquaints themselves in any way with esoteric investigation must be aware of this. In ordinary life, things are established to ensure that the Luciferic and Aramonic powers opposing the angels and archangels can nevertheless be beneficially directed in all their workings. There is no point in seeking to be wiser than the wisdom governing the world and to ask, why do we need these Luciferic and Aramonic beings? Human beings could not be as free as they are if they were not given a counterweight to the angelic beings in the nature of these two powers. We must be able to lie so that we can come to truth by our own powers. We must achieve truth autonomously, and therefore we need Araman. We have to resist Araman and pursue the path toward truth. By this means we have become an autonomous being in whom the sense of truth inheres. The most sublime powers governing the world have established things so that their adversaries, Lucifer and Araman, do not take all before them. They exist, surely, to serve our freedom and the evolution of consciousness by compelling us strongly with impure urges, desires, and also false judgments, which in the course of karma can be rebalanced and redressed, and ultimately cannot disrupt the mission of the earth. Among the loveliest and profoundest insights we can gradually develop through esoteric studies is this, that all untruth and all that is bad can ultimately be transformed into the good. But there is a pressing question that everyone should really ask themselves. Apart from this fact, is there another reason why we must pass through all our incarnations and only perfect ourselves by first committing all kinds of error? Yes, there is a reason for this. It is beyond the scope of this lecture to elucidate why human beings, through their previous earthly lives, have come to a point when they can only gradually mature. Presently, we are only independent in respect of the consciousness soul. But a time will come when, despite all inclination for error, we will have a sure command of our actions and their effects. If we had no sign of this as yet, we would be plunged in continual conflict and quarrel. As humanity is at present, it is ripe to acquire freedom in the consciousness soul. But people are not yet ripe for freedom in the mind soul and sentient soul. Progress never occurs in a completely linear evolution. In all cultures, we can see how some souls hurry on ahead take leadership and prefigure what other souls can only develop in later eras. Today human souls are only ripe for freedom in the consciousness soul. But spiritual wisdom gradually leads us to gain freedom in the mind soul and sentient soul too, to gain more isolated autonomy, so that to find what is good we no longer have to look to traditional and habitual tenets or customs. Instead, the impulse for good will stream from our own soul. This is also a necessary interpretation of the Pauline saying, Not I, but Christ in me. When Christ lives in human beings, they will be able to be free also in respect of the mind-soul and the sentient soul. 
Humankind has already developed a somewhat dispassionate outlook as far as the most trivial, logical matters are concerned in mathematics. Here, passions have withdrawn far enough from human hearts for people to be able to discover the truth for themselves. But as far as the mind-soul and sentient-soul are concerned, people continue to adjust the truth as required and even consider such adjustments to be the key thing since Luciferic and Aramonic powers are everywhere at work. You will understand that in a movement founded upon spiritual wisdom, where the aim is to awaken deeper powers of the human soul to isolated awareness, mere curiosity about the worlds of spirit is not enough. This simply cannot be the motivation for spiritual inquiry at all. Instead, what is needed is a sense of responsibility. Through this movement, future human capacities are drawn in advance into our time. A seed of the future is awoken that in general is not yet ripe. We must be aware of this. We must be careful and attentive in ensuring that even if the soul remains fine and congenial within this spiritual movement, we must nevertheless remain alert to the dangers that threaten it and awaken a sense of responsibility. When the soul approaches spiritual things without the required maturity, there is indeed a danger, and not everyone will notice it. Those who stand more deeply rooted in this movement will know, must know, if they are not to collapse under the unendurable, that they must always be careful to utter only things that have first passed a hundred times through their soul, and not just once or ten times. It is difficult when speaking of spiritual matters to formulate words in a way that is fitting. Within the whole circle of anthroposophists, a particular view must become current, the view that we require of those who represent the movement that they pay due heed to the truth in this sense. It should not be thought that someone can simply stand up and deliver a lecture every evening without repeatedly and continually allowing these truths to pass through their soul so that the right words and formulations are found. One aspect of this is the difficulty we face in even opening our mouths to express spiritual matters. The other is that those who belong to such a movement must actually ensure that this feeling exists in those who represent the movement. Yet even those who do not yet stand deeply within it must take care that certain things do not happen to their soul. They should keep asking themselves this, Am I mature enough yet to represent a spiritual movement? Do I need to place myself more fully within this movement so that the world of spirit can act more strongly upon me? No one should be discouraged by this, but they should awaken in themselves the sense that previously they may have done what is good and right under the compulsions of tradition and upbringing, and that there is a boundary where, in representing the truth, not only the angels, archangels, and spirits of personality stand, but also Lucifer and Arman. We can repeatedly discover that people who previously loved the truth begin to lie when spiritual scientific truths work upon them. And this is because 
They have not sufficiently recognized that they must, above all, grow mature, must allow spiritual truths to work upon them, and must not let themselves speak. We have to be aware of this need for responsibility. But it would be cowardly to refrain, therefore, from joining the spiritual movement. Right conduct is not to evade a duty to be careful, but to take proper heed of this duty. These things I have spoken of now are deeply connected with what has in every era distinguished a character of progressive spiritual movements. There are the great lights who seek to advance humanity. But wherever great lights are found, deep shadows are often present. And this can explain the not always unjustified accusations we hear against those who seek to bring down truths from the world of spirit to the physical plane. In every such movement, those who wished to do nothing other than help spiritual truths flow down into the physical world have been joined by others who did not care to practice self-criticism nor to tame their pride and vanity. We can observe plentiful instances of this within spiritual movements, and we have to recognize that unfortunately the outer world is unable to distinguish between such advocates and those who truly embody the movement. The reverse is sometimes also true. Especially in our spiritual scientific movement, people should appeal to independent judgment and sweep away all sense prevailing in society that what is said is less important than who says it. We should attend only to what a person says if, when we bring our sense of truth and open minds to it, we find it illuminating. Our movement is in the highest degree fit to help independent judgment germinate and take root. Yet in our time there is a strong dose of what we might call comfortable belief. Great obstacles to the spiritual scientific movement are created through this comfort-seeking dependency. To believe something simply because a particular person says it hampers free judgment, free human soul life, hampers the developing autonomy also of the mind-soul. It is so comfortable not to have to think for oneself and to accept something as truth because this or that person said it. It is much easier to believe a person than to check and test what they have said. I have often asserted that we can initially offer stimulus only within the spiritual movement. But if you take all the historical accounts of, say, Zarathustra, nothing in them will refute what has been said about him here, if you really survey them fully. These things can be examined and checked and the more rigorously this is done, the more agreeable it is to someone who wishes to represent the spiritual movement in an objective way. Such a person has the will to examine and test statements. But it is so much more comfortable and easy to believe simply to say that this or that clairvoyant said something was so. This is a danger for both real and supposed clairvoyance until they are fully sure of their perceptions. It is certainly tempting to tell people things they will believe. It is all too easy to lurch into something that lurks in wait as a person seeks to ascend to the supersensible world. 
Such a person is rising into a world where things really cannot so easily be checked as they can in the physical world. It takes quite a bit of checking to ascertain rationally that angels and archangels intervene at certain boundaries. Belief often depends only on the impression that we have gained of someone else. We can see from mass suggestion how easy it is to exert an influence on people and get them to believe things. The most wonderful discoveries will be made in future about mass suggestion. In earlier times it was quite different because the consciousness soul was not yet so independent. Today we are at a point where the consciousness soul is becoming emancipated and yet at the same time we are still completely caught up in the unfreedom of the mind-soul. How does suggestion work? It isn't only through the sympathetic or unsympathetic qualities in a person. It is also at work, for instance, when someone has taken up a certain post and having to support his five children, say, believes he is compelled to stay in this job. People often prefer to attend to what charlatans say about their spiritual insights than to things based on sound inquiry. You see, the former will have two qualities. First of all, it will be very trivial in nature. For instance, the things mediums write down in automatic writing are often such that another could easily work it out for themselves. People believe it because of the way it is conveyed. They think something is being communicated to them from the world of spirit. The very triviality of such pronouncements recommends it to people. Or, alternatively, these, in quotes, insights, are so incomprehensible that no one can understand what they mean. The more incomprehensible they are, the more, in quotes, mystical they are often thought to be. At the boundaries between supersensible and sensory reality, charlatanism can easily combine with things that do derive from serious inquiry. It must be emphasized that we only fulfill our duty here if we are alert to the workings of our own soul, keenly attending to everything that can be muddied by instincts. We may think we are advancing the concerns of humanity, whereas in fact we may only be advancing our own, or unnoticed, untruth. The temptation of Araman can mingle with our words. We can only truly make progress by being continually awake to all these things, only by repeatedly reminding ourselves that if we join a spiritual movement there is a great danger of becoming vain and arrogant. This is self-evident. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with it unless a person does nothing to recognize and deal with these attributes. There is a huge temptation to depart from the truth a little when associating with people who believe you. You can pull the wool over people's eyes if they take what you say as authoritative. People should not be reproached for the fact that as they come nearer to the world of spirit, mendacity appears in them. But they must not excuse this in themselves. They must make every effort to root out this tendency. This is the meaning of the phrase, Man, know thyself. We must seek moments of secluded reflection when we can come to see that yet again a danger threatens and we must be on our guard. 
if we do not have these secluded moments, if it is too unpleasant for us to acknowledge things in us that are not good, and if such recognition does not become the point of departure for combating our flaws with all our might, then we are on a slippery slope. We will slip downward instead of ascending. These are things we must consider if we are to affirm our stance toward esoteric inquiry, the mode of inquiry that is the highest gift of grace flowing into the physical world from worlds of spirit, toward which we should feel the greatest responsibility. The duty should awaken in us to enter the world of spirit with others who make up part of humanity, because this is the only possible way to make progress. At the same time, this should be accompanied by a sense of responsibility, the sense that having once become acquainted with these things, it becomes our duty to engage with them. Those who represent spiritual science are often accused of paying too little heed to moral questions. Yet we do often engage with such questions, as we have done again today, so that as our spiritual movement progresses and leads us toward the sources of the Spirit, the impulses that flow from those sources can increasingly be heard. The end of Lecture 3